very safe walking through there at night, but I'm a white middle class woman. The place is made for me to feel safe, mm-hmm. you know, and I, but I know that a whole bunch of other exclusions happening in order for me to walk through that space that are very uh, wrong. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be in the studio today with Dr. Emma Jackson. who is director of the Centre of Urban and Community Research at Goldsmiths University of London. Emma is senior lecturer as well, is editor of Sociological Review and specialises in urban sociology, ethnography, practice of belonging and process of urban change. This is such an exciting episode for me because there is no Chantelle without Emma. Oh. There is no Chantelle without Emma. <laughs> Emma was my PhD supervisor. Emma taught me how to write. Emma ta- taught me how to be a sociologist. Emma got me to sit here to be able to talk in the way that I can talk on this show. I am so, so grateful for Emma and it is a very, very exciting time for us to have Emma in the studio because... Oh, Chantel. Don't, <laughs> I'll, I'll cry before we even start. No, but it's true. <laughs> it's a lovely introduction. It's true. I think that sometimes where we're in the academy, we're so fixated on like presenting like the lone scholar or someone that gets to where they are on their own or just through hard work. And that is just not the case. There's already there's always so many people that are influencing you behind the scenes, particularly with how you come to like be able to do scholarly works. It's so hard. And um I'm all I always try to say that on the show. There's so many people that helped me um along the way or continue to help me along the way. And Emma is one of them. So I'm really, really excited for you to be here in the studio with us. Thank Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about, and already in our pre-chat, like the, the, the tension, the tensions, the tension's definitely there because it is such a big conversation what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about leisure spaces, but in the context of gentrification. And Emma's work, as I said, um, focuses on urban space and practices of belonging. But in particular, we're talking about Emma's work that looked at the bowling alley and a yes. particular bowling alley within North London, one that we will not be um, naming on yeah, this show. Yeah. Um, and we were sort of getting into it because obviously as the listeners know Tiso's a London native through and through I'm a definitely an I'm definitely an outsider of the city I would say one once one that's much more kind of speculative but also kind of a Londoner and then Emma's obviously done a lot of work sociological work and lived in London for a long time yeah and cities for a long time I've lived in London for 26 years now 26 years so crazy so it is it's it's very interesting talking about something so loaded political and personal like yeah when i read your paper emma a lot of it is just from my personal experience so growing up here in the docklands right it's the area of high development lots of leisure spaces disappearing and being part of those spaces and sometimes being an argument where I want things to stay the same. Yeah. And as I've got older, you see things a bit wider and you're thinking, oh, maybe there's a different point of view. So there's this tension I feel in myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading it, it evoked feelings. I'm thinking, do, do I have it right? This is going to make for an interesting conversation. It really is. All. And I think that this is such a powerful example of like how dialogical knowledge production can make up, can help us to understand things in different ways. But also like the tension is that internal tension that you feel when you're mm. reading something that is clearly 
looking at putting the people before development but sometimes it's not always as simple as that so i think Mm. yeah emma tell us just for the purpose of the listeners who don't necessarily might not necessarily know your scholarship through and through how did you come to be working on leisure spaces and the bowling alley Oh, well, there's a couple of different ways I can tell this story. One is how I found the bowling alley and one is how I got interested in some of these questions. So I I started to go bowling at this place back in the mid to late 90s when I was in my early 20s, late teens. And it was a place where you'd go when the pub shut. I was in a band. It was a place where we'd go and hang out. So I've known this place for a really long time. But my interest in it then was not sociological. It was I was just having a good time with my pals. And then over the years, I've done lots of different projects on belonging and urban change. And I found myself, I was working on a project as a research assistant. And um, that looked at the relationship between the middle classes in the city. And it was very neighbourhood based. And I found myself going to lots of academic conferences where people would be presenting papers on these different neighborhoods across cities across Europe and they'd be looking at um, diversity in the city how do people live with difference in neighborhoods and I started to get just a bit bored with starting with the neighborhood all the time Mm. as the unit of analysis it's like okay and other kinds of spaces were coming into my head and I was like okay what happens if we started with this bowling alley which has a particular um, feel to it it's um, it's quite rowdy you get you know all life is there from work dues, kids' birthday parties, there's a bowling league, but also it's very diverse and diverse here, meaning um, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different genders, uh, people with different kinds of disabilities. So I thought this is quite an interesting place in terms of how do people share space, what kinds of, um, what can we learn about the social life of the city? And then I just was doing some idle Googling and found out that actually, in the meantime, the bowling alley had come under th- under threat um, and that the council's plans for redeveloping the area, um, the bowling alley sat right in the centre of this space that they wanted to redevelop. And the councils, it's on the, um, this is in Finsbury Park, so it's on the edge of three different councils. They had put forward a plan to demolish the bowling alley to increase the view of the park and to build some residential units on there. There then was a big local furore, um, some people started a petition and one of their arguments about why the bowling alley shouldn't be demolished was that it provided a place for, well there's a whole bunch of arguments on there actually, but that it was used by a diverse group of people, that young people could use it that it was an important uh, leisure space for people with disabilities. So suddenly this bowling alley had become symbolic of what the future of the area should be. So I thought, oh, this adds a whole other interesting set of questions to it. So I guess I was interested in the place as a social space, but also how it was embroiled in all of these arguments about development and about um, future, what the future of this place should be. And when you started the research, were you interviewing people that used the bowling alley as well as looking at how it's being represented in the council? Well, I started looking at the, I started in the archives, mm-hmm. um, pulling out everything I could find about the centre of Finsbury Park and the history of this particular place. And it's very easy to get lost in, in these archives. But mm. that was my first um, point of call. And I went also 
I saw while I was doing that archival research, there was a conference on the future of Finsbury Park that was held in the bowling alley. So I went along there. Um, it was before Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader, actually, but he's a local MP. So he was speaking at this conference. It was this whole, it was perfect in terms of what I was interested in. Um, and so I went to that, chatted to some people there. And then I just started going to the bowling alley and chatting to people, interviewing people. I started going along to the bowling league, um, interviewed people there, made a worked with a filmmaker there to make a short film with the bowling league. So there were lots of different, I used lots of different methods within the study. And what do you think, like, given that, like, in your paper and when I've seen you discussing this research and we've spoken about it, for the, for the purpose of the listeners, like, what do you think are some of the kind of most, like, the headlines of what people maybe wouldn't expect you to see or hear about when it comes to the bowling alley? Like, we, we talked about your research being about process of belonging and practices mm. of belonging. What are some things that you think that people wouldn't probably take for granted in terms of the function of a place like this? Yeah, there's lots of different things from the fact that I, I spoke to a group, to some carers that bring a group of disabled young people there and they told me about how they use the space to um, help the young people develop their independence by practising transactions with money in a, in a safe space. That you wouldn't know from looking at that place. And actually you wouldn't know if you're there in a works night out because mm-hmm. that's another thing about these places. They have these different rhythms and uses at different types of the day. But also things like someone who goes to bowl in the bowling league might be also, through the process of doing that activity, enacting a link to a place they were from. So I spoke to people who were from the US who had a night, it gave them a, a sense of a link to somewhere else, to mm-hmm. home, through through bowling. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone who used to bowl for their state in Australia Um that they sort of reconnected with that part of themselves through coming to bowling. So two very different kinds of things that could be going on. Also, I was interviewed for your research on this because I used to do, I don't get as much time to do it now, but um, youth work and I would take young people to this place and it was such a, it was such an important part of creating space that was inside, that was warm, that was like a place of play and leisure, but also a place of friendship and yeah, being like when you're doing youth work, particularly if you're doing it outside of like school spaces and whatever, like you need to be in very particular kind of environments and like a bowling alley is perfect for it. As in, if you think about it in terms of safeguarding, in terms of like looking after young people. Um, So yeah, like I think that when we talk about the term leisure spaces, all the examples you've just given, I think so many people don't necessarily realise, or they do know, but when you actually spell them out and say them, you're like, shit, God, these places are so important, Mm. actually. Mm. But then on the flip side, there are things about these places, which I think T was sort of talking about in our pre-chat, that sometimes we kind of romanticise them. And I don't know, for me, I didn't grow up in an urban centre, I didn't grow up in a city, so I don't I don't necessarily know that language or that discourse as well. Like, leisure centres were a place for us to basically go and hang out, but I know they've performed very different functions sometimes in the city. I think people overlook them, I don't think about them, because you get them elsewhere, right? So in your life, as you're travelling around, you, so you don't take them for granted, they don't stick out in your mind. So you just, you just kind of perform them, and you don't list them down as goods, I think, we, we, as human beings, you tend to remember bad things more than these good things, right? So yeah. they, they don't tend to stick out in your mind. So you don't really count them. When these spaces start to disappear, then you realise, you think, shit, then you see the value of them. 
But because you just encounter them on a daily basis and you don't see them as such a big thing, they don't stand out. When these spaces do come to disappear, the argument doesn't kind of jump forward. I think you're right. Um, we take these things for granted. But also, if you're just going on your own experience of a, of a place, you're probably doing one of those things, not realising that it, at the other end of the room, someone else is having this completely different experience. You know, there were also guys that use that place more like a pub or a social club who don't ever bowl. They just go and have a drink at the bar after work so there are all of these people doing these different things but yeah you're right I think because as well these places can be so everyday to us but also we don't know what is going on for every single person mm. in that space and in terms of what wh when you've been thinking of valuing the bowling alley like if you were putting that across to someone that wasn't necessarily trained in sociological thinking, how mm. would you how would you present that, Emma? Like in terms of how we value leisure spaces or don't value. And going back to that shock that I felt at seeing that all of these things that I thought were interesting about these places weren't being officially valued. I'm kind of interested in how people mobilise what they think is important about a place. Mm. Um but then also, can that have any? How how is that made to have an impact in the processes of redevelopment? Mm. So in this case, there, it did look like there was an avenue by which the social value of this place could lead to it being saved. So there's this um, process called the asset of community value, where if people in a community think that they want to, if a place goes up for sale, like the bowling alley. People can get together, put an application to get it listed as an asset of community value. So sorry, this is, if it may be going up for sale, then you can do that. You can get together, put a case to the council, get it listed in a, as an asset of community value. And what that does is, if it does go up for sale, it's you get six months as a group to get the money together to buy it. So part of what I was arguing is this is very inadequate in terms of thinking about how we translate what... A community or several you know different groups of people think is important about a place if that's the only way you can save that kind of place I think we're in trouble because most of those applications don't get beyond that registering you know because mm. because it doesn't it gives you the right to bid that but you have to get the money together to compete so I, I think that that was brought in as part of David Cameron's localism agenda you know big society this, yeah this idea that um communities should do these things for themselves all the while resources are being cut i thought this case study was interesting as well in terms of thinking through what that does and doesn't enable you kind of hit against a brick wall because you're trying to turn i guess in terms of economic jargon it's like intangible assets right so you can't really the stuff we spoke about it's hard to put a number to it yeah and then you're you're coming against a capitalist, a developer who has mm. hard numbers. They speak in round figures, and it's very understandable to people. What I would, in exchange for this, you will get X. Yeah. But when I'm talking about diversity and diversity of people, and this, it's hard to kind of not hard for people to understand. It's hard for people to understand it in terms of seeing it against zeros, ones, and zeros, right? And I've got actually to follow on from that point, so I've got a quote from the article that I picked out, which actually speaks to that directly. Okay, so Emma says. And yet, do the spaces of values beyond value have to be directly anti-capitalist in order to move beyond its logic? For example, what about claims for the values of diversity that move beyond or refuse the logic of capital? 
these spaces may not be anti-capitalist in orientation, but may be important to fostering local socialities. And what I think is so interesting about that is the case point of the leisure space, but the bowling alley in this instance, is really trying to push back against individualism. But it's so hard to do that. Like the case is, as you said, it's not a one or a zero. The case is moral. The case is love. The case is familial. The the case is friendship. The case is polite. Like it's Mm. all these things that do not have a number on them. But you know, the madness is, I think, so an area that I think kind of reflects that kind of, that kind of, well, initially it's kind of reflected that kind of anti-capitalist reaction is Brick Lane. As it's been gentrified, it's kind of pushed a a notion of diversity that doesn't really reflect what the area was as growing up there, what I thought the area was about, it kind of reflects a kind of almost almost textbook version of diversity. Mm. So you get hipsters, you get all these other people there, but it's very superficial almost. It's almost very artificial. For example, the Box Park, which is a, a created space and it's supposed to be for all these different artists. So my, one of my friends had a, a kind of a pop-up store there. So you had all these different kind of uh, artisans. You had all these different groups of people, but it's very artificial. It's not like the brick lane I grew up with. And it, and it attracts a certain type of people now. Mm. So it attracts mainly young people. Mm. But initially, I don't think that was the aim. It's meant to have this kind of organic feeling, but it's not organic. Yeah, but I think that's one of the things about the, the term diversity is so slippery mm. and it can be used to gloss lots of things. So on the one hand, you've got um, the diversity that you described that you grew up with and then you've got diversity being used more as a marketing device in terms of this new development Mm. and I think that is very similar to what was unfolding in Finsbury Park actually where you've got a lot of talk around and looking at the council documents there was a lot of talk about entrepreneurial diversity and vibrancy without actually naming any of the groups who had originally migrated into the area and fed into this particular place. Mm. So, you know, there was no mention of people from the Caribbean moving in or Irish people moving in or or any of those important stories that, um, that made the area what it is. Rather, its diversity is used in this kind of fluid way that could mean some artisans you know it could coming in and making something um and that's what so i i using diversity in this paper but in using it with a bit of caution because i think it can be used to as part of selling neighborhoods in this way but then what i also found is that it, it can be used to push back against those developments as well yeah and that's what that's what I think you're talking in terms of what is the value and what is social value. Like the use, we can use diversity, we can harness those words, but we have to be clear. That's why I was sort of pushing you to on what you were saying next. Like mm. Actually naming what we're talking about in a world that is hyper capitalist and is so individualistic. The only things that we really have is, is descriptors of specificity. Like mm. if we talk about exactly what we mean, then they can't use, they, it's, diff- it's more difficult for them to use us, that against us. Yeah. So no, I don't mean the artisan bakery. Yeah. No, I mean the youth group getting a concession to use the bowling alley. Do you know what, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes even in academia where like we can be, I don't think you do this and I think you're really clear in the paper, but I think sometimes when we're talking about diversity, community and yeah, urban change in academia, like, 
our language or our ways of talking about this can be misused by those people. Oh, and definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're kind of seeing come into play and on the ground, people don't really understand. So when the developers are talking about diversity, it's a very uh, bland notion of diversity, which you don't feel part of. Mm. And then, but what tends to come to pass is that's what you end up living in as an anecdote. So one of my friends, he said, as he goes out in the area, he doesn't even speak in his own, in his own accent because he feels that, he feels that alienated from where he lives. So his local pub, people go down there, but he won't tell people where he lives here. He won't speak in how he normally speaks. But although the pub is full of, I guess, the same types of people, but he knows they're not his people. And it's mm. that kind of feeling when you're in these spaces. That particular space that I'm talking about is a space we used to use all the time. But it's changed over time, like most places change. What do you do? How, how do you feel in those spaces? I, I, like I said, I, when I read your paper, I'm conflicted because I've used it from both sides. So as someone who's left the area, done some stuff and come back, as someone who's grown up and used it in the area, how it was before. Sometimes um, the two options that are put to people are everything staying exactly this, is the same. And that can be about underinvestment in housing and youth services, you know, a couple of the things we've spoken about. Mm. Or wholesale, massive redevelopment, this place is going to change beyond things you've seen and funnily you were talking about um canary wharf example earlier and yeah. when i went to that conference on the future of finsbury park someone stood up who'd been involved in the docklands development and said you know we're going to make this brilliant public space and it can be just like canary wharf and i was thinking who holds up canary wharf as being like the best the kind of of, of, of public space i mean and also have you seen what's here already because it looks very different to that i guess one of the words is like visions right vision mm. what's your vision of the future so like when i think of areas in london i used to frequent all the time so one of them is like so canary wolf physic park as well but also uh king's cross surrounded back that's been obviously done up so growing up there it was an abandoned depot so when i go there now and i see people on a saturday sunday baskets of people i'm thinking oh, that actually is it seems not too bad at that time when it was in a depot, what, what vision did I have? Or not me personally, but as someone who frequents the area, do you have a vision of what that would look like? And I think that's where, when you're having these debates, sometimes are, are people that kind of in transit, that do they have a vision of what the area would want to look like? It's hard to kind of have that long-term view, right? Yeah, but the King's Cross, like if we um, if we stick with the King's Cross example, yeah. that's a mm -hmm. very interesting case it because is. that has changed beyond recognition. Wait, did you go Bagley's? I did. Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> yes! I did go to Bagley's. Bagley's and Bagley's. That's a, it's funny, you know, it's like the equivalent of it was all fields. you like saying, you know, children, I used to go clubbing here, you know. <laughs> now it's Bagley's, very yeah. expensive shops. Yeah, yeah. yeah I did yeah. used to go to Bagley's and, you know, queue up outside of Kingsborough Station for taxis while being curb crawled and yeah, all of that. So <laughs> it was, a, you know, it was a difficult place to yeah. mm, uh, to be at times but also now what you've got is this pseudo public space which is owned predominantly by an Australian pension company that's the money that's gone into that place there are private security guards there who will move you on if they think you're not the right kind of person I did a bunch of research there before the Eurostar opened with people that lived in hostels there who were being Terrorized. so over policed yeah, yeah. Yeah, very over-policed to get them to not hang out um, 
on the streets around there. So for that to be in place, for, for King's Cross to be remade in that way, you've got all of these other things happening in terms of the police, the removal of people who are seen as not the right people to be in that space. And then this strange kind of um, pseudo public space. It's like Toy Town type thing. Do you know what I mean? It reminds me of like a model of like a like a toy model of an area. That's what King's Cross is. For the purpose of um, the people that um, don't know King's Cross that are listening to the show, it's um, one of the largest mainland, mainland stations in yeah, yeah. Um, London. And actually, do you know what? Like, T, you need to be careful because Emma's your age and she's got all the receipts on all the places that you're Maggie, that you're, Maggie, that you're talking about. Maggie's so you can't be like, well, King's Cross here, King's Cross case. Emma will be like, I, I, I do know. I do know no, that place. But I... What's like I said, I, I agree what you're saying, Emma. Like, so there's a bridge to go to Kenny Wolf, right? But because it's a private space, so the homeless people are on one side of the bridge, but they can't come over. And so, but most people, when they're using space, they're not really paying attention. So I spoke to someone there, and I, I, I think when it was redeveloping Kenny Wolf building one of the towers, and I spoke to one of the employees there, and I said, What do you like about it? And she goes, I like the space because there's no homeless people. And she said, There's no homeless people and there's no rubbish. And she says, You feel safe because there's a private mm-hmm. police force on there. My initial response was I got a bit annoyed because I said, I'm a resident and I can't even come here. So I'm police when I go through there. So, but then I'm thinking, try to understand it from her point of view. I no, I think she needs to understand yeah, it from no, your point, point of view. view. And also because yeah. I was walking, sorry Chantel. No, go on, Emma. No, no, I had <laughs> this, I was, I was walking through the, the Kings Cross development a few, I went to see West Side Story at a very fancy cinema yeah. in Kings Very nice. Yeah. Um, Every man. Yeah. And I was sort of, you know, walking back through this place and I thought, wow, this, you know, when I thought about what King's Cross used to be like and I feel very safe walking through there at night, but I'm a white middle class woman. The place is made for me to feel safe, Mm -hmm. you know, and but I know that a whole bunch of other exclusions happening in order for me to walk through that space that are very uh, wrong. So I think that's why I'm saying I think that and the person also, and you were talking to needs to think about other experiences of that mm. space. And also, feeding on from that point and the point you made earlier, T, about vision, mm. the key point is, coming back to Emma's paper, what is positioned or what is prioritised as a value, but also who has the power to put their vision forward to change an area or to change a leisure space or to get rid of a leisure space. And the reality is it's going to be the person, the highest bidder or the person that's going to make the most money. Like the fact that it's an Australian pensions company yeah. that did that, did all that. So like, I see your point in that, like actually sometimes places that are in, that have not had any kind of development or investment, like to see them become like shiny and new, perhaps we need to think about the value of that. But equally, if there's some, if you're in a boardroom and someone's putting forward the case of social values that relate to family, friendship, play, leisure, over someone that's saying, actually, I just want to build um, expensive shops and flats, like who's going to win the argument in the boardroom? It's not going to be the no, first person. So, yeah. You're 100% correct. And so uh, another working example right now. So, oh, no, across the road from my mum's, see right so there's a a hilton built there the guy's kenyan mm. he's a billionaire so he just built a big hotel across the whole space you can't see anymore the dialogue there's no power it's the power relation right so regardless of what we say these people are going to push through what they want because it's, they, there's a power dynamic at play and there's a sense of frustration as our space gets smaller but this has been repeated over and when we talk about ledger spaces it's not just it's not just uh, spaces where you go. Sometimes it's street corners. 
Mm. Sometimes it's like the the um, park. the park or the, or the local chicken shops. They're going. These restaurants are going because mm. of the clientele is, is changing. So once you start seeing that, you, there's a sense of power, powerlessness you feel. So what do you think then? Because so, you've so, because so, you've presented. No, no, I'm interested yeah, so in what on. you think because I would say you've kind of presented in this conversation two quite large structure positions. Yeah. So what do you actually think? And, and, and so I'm telling you, I'm, I'm torn, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm no, torn. Like listen, like so when a man gets a bit of money and you go out and you boom, yeah, you start yeah. seeing people. I don't. I'm mingling with the new people that's come here mm. and you're you're moving going to the new clubs going to shops there's trainer shops there now there's mm. all these things that weren't there and it and you and you start you start seeing feeling some you start feeling different about the area right but then boom when you're back to normal you've got no money and you're moving the way you used to move then you're thinking right there's not much, i haven't got much space so you're kind of conflicted because you mm. i can see what's happening mm-hmm. i can see and like listen don't get really twisted. Like, there's more police, so it's a it's a bigger problem, mm-hmm. and there's more people here. And so, like again, another anecdote. So, you find people that just moved to the area or just or just coming in. They don't really understand it. So, I've seen a case where some guy's being chased, and he's just just so happy, lucky that the police are going by, but they don't understand how to move in these spaces. Mm-hmm. So, I, you can you can see it, and I'm thinking, right, like I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. I truly don't know. Mm-hmm. I think though, if we think about well, how could things be otherwise it's not saying oh nobody must ever move into a into a neighborhood or or blaming people who have just moved in i think we have to look at the structural things that underpin these changes so what happens things like in london land value and the housing situation are so fraught you know land is worth so much mm. money and the the housing market there's so much money to be made but if we were able to um think about those things differently to change how those operated in terms of you know you know in, in terms of some form of rent control or th- these kinds of things that would just keep people allow people to stay mm. in space and stop because you know how it is in london something changes you know that the process of gentrification can be so sudden you know you mm. you've described it in in uh, one particular area you know you see a couple of things change and suddenly it's boom 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 the mm. street looks completely different the, the the pace is so fast here it's hard to talk about anything other than like in that kind of capitalist mode. Like it's mm. it's crazy. So, for example, we get lots of letters through our door from uh, letting companies saying rent your flat out to mm. corporates. And when you're thinking, well, like I need, I need some money, like the money they're offering, and you all that all that good that you know you take part and you take part in, not it goes out the window. But you kind of start weighing up these options, and you're thinking, right? So you're trying to think of how am I going to navigate this? So you start thinking, how am I going to navigate life? Mm. You've drawn attention to a couple of really poignant things that go on in terms of being made to feel being made to feel out of place when a neighborhood changes and also that sense of pressure on your housing so depending on your housing position those leaflets coming in might make you feel like oh there's potential there but if you're a tenant in that place it, you might just start to feel like oh they're going to throw me out soon because they can make more money through this way so you know the way that you're positioned as a resident yeah, there can be different experiences within that. It's class, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's so class. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I think um, is definitely something we just we need to sort of touch on and or reflect on together, particularly thinking about leisure spaces and the city, and obviously we're talking about London in particular, is the pandemic, but also now the cost of living crisis as well, and these two things together. And I wondered if you could maybe take us back to 2020, Emma, when the lockdown started what were your initial thoughts about number one the bowling alley but number two leisure spaces 
I got quite frustrated. I mean, I'm not some sort of anti lockdown person or anything. No, no, no. We're not, but, we've always um, talked about the nuances, how class the lockdown was. How we're, we're not anti lockdown, but, but equally, it was. It was a lot. It was a lot. And also, I thought there was no consideration of some of these questions. And I found that really frustrating that the only, again, value, you know, if we think about value and values, that the economic cost was talked about all the time. And that's, you know, that's serious if you're running a business or or you can't work, then that's serious. But it's not the only thing at play. So there's the economic cost and the health aspect. But I feel like the social um the social cost of lockdown, I don't think we scraped the surface, really. I and never... on the left, we were looking for it week after week after week. We were looking for that kind of discourse on the left and it just wasn't there. No. Like, at no, all. I don't think so. Um, Talia Blockland's done a load of really interesting work on Berlin under lockdown. Um, and they've, they've got really good um, survey responses and stuff mm-hmm. about people's experiences and the decline in speaking to other people and what that what that meant for people. So I think we're only probably starting to grapple with that aspect and going, hang on a minute. Is everyone happened? all right? Yeah. <laughs> is, is everyone all right? Because yeah. that was really strange. Yeah. And also, oh, what kind of places do we want? Are we back to business as usual? You know, um, are we still going to go out? Um, and then there's also this question of how places survive with all the additional pressures post mm. the lockdowns now with mm. the cost of living crisis and the mm. energy crisis. But yeah, it really frustrated me. It was one of my many pandemic bugbears. Like, why aren't, haven't sociologists got something to say about this? You know, wouldn't it be a good idea also to get someone on that can talk about the social implications of of what's happening because I just didn't see that that was being held up as important at all. During that lockdown experience, I, afterwards a lot of the pubs closed down and a lot of pubs where I'm from are social hubs. They're not just there for drinking. And particularly one group that was particularly hard hit were pensioners. I guess when people talk about pensioners, there is an image that comes into your head. But from my experience, these are they're very active people doing different things and they have lots of stories to tell. And that space is no longer available. And after, during the lockdown, it was pretty hard for them. And after the lockdown, that space, is, it, it closed down because they couldn't afford it. And the co- obviously the cost of living, it's made it a bit harder for pubs. So these people now, I don't know. And to this day, I don't know where they go. I don't know where they go. In fact, it's a lie. I know where one of them goes. He goes to a fast food restaurant every morning. A oh, where, sorry? Fast food restaurant. Fast food restaurant. Just sit there. It's, it's trying to understand, so, there's so many places closed down, so many yeah. places closed down, so many leisure spaces, so many pubs. But that process of displacement, like when yeah. people are displaced, where where do, where do they go? And again, growing up where I grew up, there's a lot. Of, there used to be a lot of homeless people. I don't know where they've gone. They were there, but I don't know where they've gone because they can't have gone far. Mm. <laughs> but so and this, so when I see all these things happening, so like I said, you're you're aware of the kind of the, the downsides, but then equally, I see the vibrancy of the area and I can see it change and it, it feels different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you're kind of conflicted. But again, maybe that's my position. I am I can afford to be that way, right? So Yeah, but with the, the example of the older people, you know, people don't just live, in, in some ways, you know, talking about leisure spaces, given what's going on at the moment, it feels almost like, oh, maybe that's a trivial thing. But I don't think it is. I think people live in places beyond their own homes. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who 
if you're an old person, you haven't got loads of disposable income, your choices about where those places are are going to be um, limit more limited. You know, you'll have a more limited range of places to choose from. And also you might just really like that pub that you've been going to for years and there's people, the same people have been going there and you feel at home there. So for that to go is then deeply traumatizing and difficult for someone. And you're asking where they've gone. Well, they might just be sat at home. Um, and also, like, I think I don't want to make it too kind of, well, it is kind of existential, but like in a moment or in a time when we're living through like this authoritarian capitalism we've got a far-right government like everything is a madness politically and has been for a long time and there's so much capital and money to be to be made when it comes to reproducing politics of division and hate and all that stuff there's so much of that obviously saturated within our everyday lives so what are the things that they can't have that we have that we can grab we can latch on to and these are things like play leisure connection like these things are fundamental i think to us actually winning like i'm sorry i think as in lots of people think that as in like it is so important so i i definitely share your frustration emma like i shared your frustration and continue to share your frustration in 2020 to now the like the the lack of attention given to connecting with people being with each other it's been really yeah it's been it's been sad to see but also like we have to latch up we have to get these things back i think but you know what it is yeah i think what is what you and emma spoke earlier about being specific about what you're talking about yeah that conviviality is what we've always done right so where we grew up that's what always happens but it's because it's a because it's the done thing no one talks about it Mm. It's, it's not like it's like it's a big thing so you don't see the big thing about some some dude coming in from the gym it doesn't look like it's from here but you become friends and you find that he's a banker, but you, you do this, you do that. But that's normal. It seems normal. So no one talks about it. And so that's sort of th- those solidarities that's created in these spaces. So from my experience, it's in, in the gym. So you have all these people from different different backgrounds all coming together, all different colours, all different religions, and sometimes being quite antagonistic to each other initially. But then after a while, these things break down and, and they become friends within that space. But I guess, yeah, and I think that's really important and that conviviality, conviviality being the everyday, like getting mm. through life and uh, like difference, differences coming together and getting through life. But I guess during the pandemic and after the pandemic now, has though, have those things changed? Like what, what does that look like now? What does conviviality look like post-pandemic? Or during kind, of, it's not. You don't even call it post one because we're still in it, aren't we? Well, they, said, they said it's officially over, apparently. Oh yeah, of course I did. Yeah. Who said that? The Bank of England. <laughs> yeah, and what really worries me now. I mean, for I think a year ago, I thought, okay, what are the ramifications of all of the things that are in place? Things like at the bowling alley, there aren't any more, but there were for a while perspex screens. Um, there were, you know, you saw things like that in pubs and cafes and new technologies that limit your interactions with other people, like using an app when you go, I hate that, going into a pub and using an I app. I hate <laughs> it, I hate it. Do you like it, George? Oh, make George, because you're allowed to talk to anyone. I'm outing myself as like an old person here, but I, felt, I, <laughs> no, I really I, hate it. Yeah, I do. Um, but these kinds of technologies, you're like, oh, will these places ever be the same? And then, I feel like aside from the apps and pubs which have remained, the perspex screens have gone, it's felt a bit more 
normal and um, but then at the same time you've got these other sets of pressures around cost of living so can people afford to go there and then the energy crisis which how are they going to heat them means the exact the kinds of places which are perfect for these kind fostering these allowing conviviality to flourish quite big spaces I think I think that's one of the things so if you've got a great big bowling alley or a leisure center you know how you keep that going Mm. given what's happening I think it's a serious uh just what's what's happening with the bowling alley right now do you know I think well I suppose this is this is like very anecdotal very anecdotal I spoke to a couple of people last last week who were there and saying it's like really busy seems great you know um and that place might be doing fine, but for places like it, um, in terms of what's coming with the with with the energy crisis, I just it's terrifying. I was thinking, so in terms of like the other thing after after the pandemic, things that had that world existed. So countries like South Korea have gone the other way. Like people are feeling like they don't really want to interact, so the government's pushing pushing more of that kind of interaction by app. South Korea, what are they doing? So they've gone the other way. So you know, you've seen the perspex screens come down. Right. They've kind of lent into the uh, the more apps, more less human interaction. Right. And but they're, there's their sociologists are saying they're scared that it's going to harm human interactions. How mm. people interact over time, maybe we'll lose something. Maybe the government needs to start thinking what we will we lose. Well, over here we value that kind of social interaction, but again, we, we don't we don't name it. It's just something that is considered that we do. Mm. And I think that's the issue. If we, if we were quite specific what we're talking about and saying like this is a this is a very powerful thing. It's a very valuable mm. thing. And it, it, we can put it in contest, contestation against kind of notions of capital. I think that would work, right? Yeah, I, th- I think, again, this is purely anecdotal, but I think my worries about are these places just going to disappear? Are people ever going to go to a nightclub ever again after mm-hmm. a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... People are, not me, but people are, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the threat is coming from from elsewhere. And I, I, I think the what really worries me is all of the pressures that were there before around gentrification, around the devaluation of places like that, plus a pandemic, and then energy crisis, cost of living. You've got a whole um, world of difficulty for some kinds of leisure spaces. And I think as well, like again, another kind of anecdotal reflection because we don't we don't know what's going to happen. But um, in more recent months, like when I've spent time either at gigs or raving, clubbing, um, being in social spaces, it is really interesting how much more racialized and class some of these spaces are becoming again. Like I'm not mm. trying to say that there was a moment of kind of like a utopian social space like as in i don't want to present that that, that those that those racialized and class distinctions weren't always happening in these places but it just seems like when i've been out more recently i've definitely experienced a lot more racism than usual and a lot more it's it's clear that it's very class in who's able to be in those spaces and there's a there's a lot of exclusions of course they've always been there and but i can see it like since the pandemic like i'm i'm a social being as in i'm an extrovert i'll go i do go out like that's a, it's, it's a big thing for me that's a big part of my everyday life but um i i have anecdotally seen some changes in how people are interacting not just with me but with each other 
And again, is that to do with the pandemic? Is that to do with the type of government that we have? Who's in charge? You know what I mean? I can see some of these things, the macro really interacting with our micro social relations. And yeah, again, anecdotal, but... Yeah, I guess um, the combination of a right-wing government plus people not being used to being in public as much oh my is it in a way it's like a perfect storm for that it kind really of is behavior. it really is and yeah like special mention to the misogynists and sexists as well like I, I think it's just I think it's gone next level I really do like again it's always been it's always been the case and always been out there but I do feel like something has happened like post pandemic where people are behaving like in ways that yeah I've not seen for a long time I think I think the fact that we haven't really considered as well is the impact of social media on these spaces. Yeah. Like how pe- it, it kind of it, it kind of shapes with how people are going to behave in those spaces before they even get there. So they're planning. What, because they're under-socialised? No, no. Like, so, <laughs> so, for example, I was, so, for example, people that use like platforms like TikTok, they're already thinking how they're going to present themselves when they get to that place. So the whole, the whole night's planned out. And so, especially like celebrities, how they're going to plan their night. So they already start taking pictures before they go, videotaping before they go. So when they get in that space, that space is not, they're not interacting how you would normally think people would interact. The blurring between your t- digital self or your social media self or your TikTok self and the real, yeah, and the real self in leisure space is definitely, you see that. I see, really? I, I, so yeah, people are that doing must, a different... And that must, actually the bowling alley would be really interesting for that as well because there is... Like if you bowling is a game and like people, TikTok, people would be filming the game. Yeah, it will be. It's so formulated TikTok yeah. in how people did. Like it would be really interesting to see how it's being used. Yeah, that's interesting because I was talking to An- Andy who I worked with to make a film about the bowling league, and he was saying we experimented with some stuff that we never used around using the Snapchat glasses, yeah, yeah, yeah. which were the thing at the time. Oh, yeah. So we tried making films with Snapchat glasses, and we just never quite made it work. We weren't really Snapchat users. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite work, but he said now, if we were doing it now, it would be TikTok. Honestly, yeah. it would be TikTok. Because like I said, when you see people, you can see them, like if you look, if you're in a box park, you see the young kids, they already started their night out filming it yeah, yeah, yeah. as they're going. And it's not just young kids. No, no, young, it's, it's like saying, professional saying, TikTokers. Yeah. Like it's a whole. God, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that. I mean, maybe that will save the leisure space. Maybe social media will help save the leisure space. I've seen my favorite TikToker at the bowling alley. I'm gonna go there. <laughs> well, that's a fairly grim conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be saved by TikTok. No, oh, it'll be not. No. I'm gonna get TikTok, George. Go on. But on. I think one. Although you know my writing on this place it did conclude what's in place currently won't be enough to stop capi- you know the logic of capital taking over this place but it's still it's still there it's still it there still for now um, and there are always um, other ways of valuing somewhere it's always sort of biting at the heels of capital you know that it's not just that capital rides roughshod over the city and there's no resistance there are pockets of resistance and people making other claims on space Mm. always Mm. and i guess a takeaway from this episode for listeners is that we as sociologists have to make continue to make the case for valuing aspects of social life that are not that do not have monetary value that don't have monetary value and that might seem very everyday and banal but are important very important Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Listeners, um, we've got another episode on our Patreon now, but we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. 
If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 